if you will, our, our scripture reading for before the lesson is 1 John 5.13. 1 John 5.13. I'm reading the New King James Version. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. As a preacher, there are certain questions that I hear more frequently than others, and this has got to be perhaps one of the most frequently heard. Can I know that I'm saved? Or some variation of that. Brother John, I don't feel saved. How can I have assurance? How can I know for a fact that I'm in a right relationship with God? That's a really good question to ask, and I suspect that all of us have wondered that. Maybe you're wondering right now. What does it mean to be in a right relationship with God? And can I know, can I have assurance? Can I have what we just sang about, blessed assurance that Jesus is mine? And the good news this morning, brethren, is that there is an answer to the question. There's a way to answer and to know whether or not we are in a right relationship with God. Let me just share four passages with you as we begin. Colossians chapter two, verse two. You might turn in your Bible there, but listen to what the writer says in Colossians two, verse two. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of, listen, the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Colossians was written to people that were, that were being attacked in their faith and people were looking at them and saying, you can't really know if you're right with God. And Paul writes to them by inspiration and says, I'm praying for you and I'm working so that you can have a full assurance of understanding so that you can know completely that you are everything that God wants you to be in Christ Jesus. That's important to contemplate for those of us who wonder. Another passage to think about is Hebrews 11 verse 1. You may know this off the top of your head. Faith, depending on your translation, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But think about what it's saying about faith and about its nature. Faith has to do with evidence. It has to do with promises. God has said to us, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will save you from your sin. God has promised certain things to us and faith is about believing the promises of God. It's about being assured that the things that God has said will come to pass, will come to pass. There is assurance that is possible for those who believe and trust the precious promises of Almighty God. Another passage to think about is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, where the writer says, I want you to continue to have the full assurance of hope. Continue to persevere because the path you're on as Christians, the way that you're living as Christians, there is full assurance. You know where the end of this road leads. You know that if you'll just hold on to Jesus and the gospel, you know that you can have the full assurance that Jesus will, will provide and will sustain and will save you from your sin. Hebrews chapter 6, 11, don't grow sluggish, he goes on to say, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
We need to think about the promises of God when we're asking questions about assurance. Can I know that I'm saved? Can I know that I'm right with God? It has to do with what God says. It has to do with what his promises are. Do I really believe and trust that what God has said is true? And do I really believe that if I'll obey God and that he will do what he has promised to do in my life? That's what these passages are saying. You can have full assurance because of who God is. And then there's 1 John 5, 13, the passage that Ricky just read a moment ago. Again, the Bible says in 1 John 5, 13 that we can have assurance. We can know that we are saved. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, John says. Sometimes we just need to go through passages like this and read and believe that they say what is true. You know, a lot of times our doubts and our questions are not so much intellectual. It's not so much about not having enough information. Sometimes people doubt that way. I just don't know enough to know whether I'm saved or not. But a lot of times our doubts are more emotional. They're the kind of crazy things that we think about late at night. And, you know, is God really telling us the truth? Is he really going to fulfill his promises? His word is true and his promises are true. And what we need to do in our hearts and our minds is go back to his word in passages like these and reaffirm, I believe that what God says to me, he will perform. That's what salvation is. It's about believing and trusting in the promises of an almighty God. Can I know I'm saved? Can you know you're saved? There are seven helpful questions to ask along these lines. As we think about what promises God has made to us, seven helpful questions that will help us to examine ourselves and see whether we truly are in a right relationship with God. And if you can answer these seven questions this morning, if you can think about these things, it will help you to understand more about what assurance really is. Seven questions to think about this morning as we ask the question, can I know that I'm saved? Number one, have I, have you obeyed the gospel? The gospel is a message. It's a revelation from Jesus to us. It talks about who he is, about what he's done, and about what he's promised to do. And the gospel is something, brethren, that is to be obeyed. It is a message, but there are conditions God has set forth in his word. And if we want to know whether we're right with God, the first question we ought to ask is, have I obeyed the gospel? In Romans 1 verse 5, Paul writes about how his whole purpose in ministry is to produce obedience of faith. Why do you preach, Paul? Why do you go from town to town talking about the gospel? Because I want people to obey the gospel, Paul says. I want them to hear and understand and do what God says. If you got your Bibles, open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 quickly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I want you to look at verse 8. This is really, really something that ought to cause us to shudder. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. The gospel is not just a message of good news, but it is, it is a message by which we will be judged. Watch this, in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, the apostle writes that Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 7, in flaming fire, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question before us is, have I obeyed the gospel? If I refuse to obey the gospel, there is no assurance 
If I say, I hear God's word, I know what he says, but I refuse to do what he says, there can be no blessed assurance for us. Doesn't matter how I feel, it matters what God's word has to say. In John 8, 24, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's a condition. If we would be saved, if we would have assurance, we must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in Acts 2.38, to people who did believe that, the apostle said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 tells us that we must repent of our sin and we must be baptized. We must be immersed in water. That is how someone obeys the gospel, friends. That's how somebody comes into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Christ, repentance, and baptism for the remission of our sins. And in 1 Peter 3.21, Peter says, baptism saves us. Somebody says, well, I think the blood of Jesus saves me. Absolutely. But when does one come into contact with the blood of Jesus? We come into the contact with the blood of Jesus in the waters of baptism, according to passages like 1 Peter 3.21 and Galatians 3.27 and many others. So one question for you and for me as we think about can I know I'm saved is, have I obeyed the gospel? God has set forth his plan for our lives. He has set forth his will for us. Have we accepted and obeyed that which God says is essential? Salvation is conditional. It is free. It is a gift to us. And yet there are conditions by which we must accept the gift that God offers. Have I obeyed? Question number two, as we ask the question, can I know I'm saved? Am I, are you willing to acknowledge and confess sin? You see, there are people who are so full of pride and so full of, of just kind of a rebellious spirit that we will not admit we're wrong about anything. I will not, I will not say I was wrong. I will not admit defeat. I will not back down. That's our attitude. And if that's our attitude, especially toward God, but also in some ways toward others, we are in serious spiritual jeopardy. Because the Bible says that those who are poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. Matthew 5 verse 3. Being poor in spirit means that I will humble myself and I will admit that without God, I am as lost as I can be. I am as wrong as I can be. I need God's light. I need his revelation. I need his word to show me what is right. Psalm 119 verse 105. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. And we are poor in spirit when we say, I don't know what's right, but God's word will tell me what's right. I want to hear what he has to say. In 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, turn in your Bibles there if you would. Let's look at that passage together. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and think about what the writer says here. Again, we're answering questions like, and they're crucial questions, can I know I'm saved? Can I have assurance? Am I willing to acknowledge and confess sin in my life? 1 John 1, verse 8. He's writing to Christians. You know, sometimes in our minds as Christians, we get the idea that, well, I was baptized. I was washed from my sins by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, I must be perfect. There must be nothing wrong in my life. But here's what he says to Christians. Look at 1 John 1 verse 8. He says, if we Christians say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Am I willing to confess, to acknowledge my sin? If we have sin in our lives and I'm not backing down and I'm not letting this go and I'm not going to confess it, if that's who we are, we are in trouble spiritually. James 5, 14 and 15 tells one who is sick to call for the elders of the church and the Bible says they are to pray over him and if he has sins, they will be forgiven him, says in James 5, 15. He goes on to say in James 5, 16, we ought to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. Again, am I willing in my life to acknowledge and to confess sin? Psalm 51, verse 17, the psalmist says, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. We need as, as people, we need to realize that we're supposed to take a look at ourselves, an honest examination of ourselves. And when we find sin in our lives, we need to acknowledge that. We need to confess that. We don't need to try to cover over that or act like it doesn't matter or act like it's not important and worse yet. We don't need to say, well, I'm not giving that up. I don't care what God's word has to say. We'll lack assurance if that's our attitude. Number three, can I know I'm saved? Helpful questions to ask. Am I trusting that Christ can do for me what I cannot? Am I trusting Christ to do what I cannot do? You know what you can't do? You can't save yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You can't pay the price for your own sins and somehow get on the other side of that and be right with God again. You cannot do that. Only Jesus can do that for you. In Matthew 14, verse 30, Peter was walking on the water, you remember, and he saw that the waves were boisterous and he started to sink and he cried out to Jesus. He said, Lord, save me. You know, sometimes that needs to be our attitude as we think about our own sin, as we think about how we're sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Lord, I need salvation. I need Jesus to provide for me what I cannot provide for myself. Hebrews 7 verse 25 tells us about Jesus, that he is a high priest who is able to save to the uttermost. I like that word, to the uttermost. It means that it's not just barely saved. It's not just by the skin of your teeth. It's not just hanging on by your fingernails kind of salvation. But when Jesus saves, he completely saves. He can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Look in your Bibles, if you would, at Romans 8, verse 3, and listen to what the writer says in this passage. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, as we ask the question again, how can I know that I'm in a right relationship with God? Listen to what it says about the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 8, verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. You know what the law could not do? The law for you can point out your sin. The law can tell you where you've fallen short. The law can tell you why you're wrong and where you're wrong, but the law cannot do one single thing to save you from your sin. So what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus came, brethren, Jesus came, friends, in order to save us because we cannot save ourselves. And the question we have to ask when it comes to assurance is, where's my trust? Where's my hope? Is my hope in the idea that I'm somehow going to keep all of God's laws perfectly and by that virtue, I'm going to be able to stand before him and say, here's all the laws I kept, God, let me in. 
or is our hope to be found in the fact that we put our trust and our hope in Jesus and what he did for us at the cross? There is a profound difference between the two. Putting your trust in Christ and putting your trust in what he did at the cross is the way that the gospel tells us that we can have assurance because Jesus paid it all. Romans 3, through 24 talks about how all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and how God has justified us freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If we're going to be saved, we're gonna be saved because of the cross, because of what Jesus did for us, not because of what we have done for ourselves. Am I trusting Christ to do what I cannot do? We need to have in our minds and in our hearts, this is the gospel. We need to have in our minds and our hearts, we can't save ourselves by doing a bunch of good deeds. But we do good deeds because of the fact that Jesus has ransomed us and redeemed us from our sins and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10, don't get the cart before the horse. The cross changes us. It makes us into something that we are not. Am I trusting Christ to do what I cannot? It's a salvation question. Next, as we think about helpful questions regarding our assurance, am I at odds with the world? That is to say, is there some kind of conflict going on in my life, in your life, when it comes to worldly things? And worldly things could be a lot. Worldly things could be just material stuff. It could be lust. It could be anger and what we do with our anger. Worldly things could be sinful pride and thinking too much of ourselves. Worldly things could be just the temptations that we endure on a daily basis, peer pressure from people around us. Am I in any way, shape, or form in my life at odds with any of that? Is there a conflict that happens in my life? If there's not, you know what? We've probably compromised our faith somewhere along the way. If there's never any kind of conflict, if there's never any kind of pushback in our lives because of the fact that we're trying to please God, where is the evidence that we're a Christian at all? Where's the evidence that we're a follower of Christ? If my life is easy and my life is calm and, and if it's just like a peaceful river as I float down, where is the evidence that you belong to Jesus Christ? Am I at odds with the world? First John chapter three, verse one talks about how we're gonna be like Christ when he's revealed, but it says the world hated him and it'll hate us because it hated him. Think about this. In James chapter four, verse four, the writer says, Whoever makes himself a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. There are some of us who are trying really hard to be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. You can't do it. You cannot be both a friend of the world and a friend of God all at the same time. I wanna have this particular sinful practice. I wanna have this particular sinful attitude. I wanna hold on to that, but I wanna be a friend of God. He can't do it, James says. He calls people who try to do that spiritual adulterers. Think about how painful and how horrific adultery is, about what that does to people about what it does to families. And James says, that's what you're like when you try to be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. You're like an adulterer. Even as a Christian, that's the way that you're living your life. In Luke 6, 40, Jesus says, every disciple when he's perfectly trained will become like his teacher in all things. Okay, 
So if I take Jesus' logic there in Luke 6.40, what that means, if you and I are disciples of Jesus, then one of the things that's happening in our lives is that we're becoming more and more and more like our teacher in every way. Question, what did the world do to Jesus? How did the world treat Jesus? Turn in your Bibles to John 15 and look at verse 18. Listen to what he says. John 15, verse 18, if every disciple is like his teacher in all things, and if that's what we are supposed to be doing as as, as Christians, in John 15, verse 18, listen to the Lord. This is on the night he's about to be crucified as he thinks about the cross and about what all is about to happen in the next few, few hours. He says to his apostles, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Am I at odds with the world anywhere? Do I ever turn off anything, internet, television program? Do I ever say no to any of those things because of the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ? Is there ever any hostility that I experience because of the fact that I will stand for what's right? Am I at odds with the world? It's an assurance question. And if that never, ever, 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 ever happens in our lives, something's wrong. Do I love the people of God? You know who the people of God are? The people of God are the church. Acts 2 verses 42 through 47, the Bible says that on the day of Pentecost, when those first 3,000 souls were baptized, they became Christians. They did what the apostles told them to do. They repented, they were baptized. And the Bible says they continued steadfastly. They started sharing with one another. They shared their possessions. They shared their time. They shared their hearts. They shared salvation in Christ with one another. They were a community of believers. That's what the church is. It's a community of believers. And the Bible says in Acts 2.47, the Lord continued adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So you've got this new community of people that believe in Jesus and that have been saved from their sins. And the Bible tells us that when someone else is saved, they're added to the community. They're part of the family now. And a question that we have to answer, all of us, as we think about assurance, your assurance is not just about you all by yourself. Our assurance has to do with, am I a part of that community and am I living the way that the Bible describes Christians living in the first century? Am I participating in the life and the work of the, of the, of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ? Galatians 6 verse 10 tells us that we, as we have opportunity, ought to do good to all and especially to those of the household of faith. Think about that. The Bible says I ought to be interested in doing good to everybody, but especially in a special place, in a special way, I ought to do good to those who are of the household of faith, those who are part of the church, those who belong to God. Do I have a love for the people of God? If you got your Bible, open up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and I want you to look at two passages with me along these lines. First one is 1 John 2 verses 9 and 10. Incidentally, If you want to study this subject further, the idea, question, can I have assurance? 1 John is your book because that's the whole point of 1 John. 1 John 5, 13 that we've already referred to a couple of times. I've written these things in 1 John so that you can know that you have eternal life. That's what the whole book is about. Can I know I'm saved? Listen to what he says in 1 John 2, verse 9. He who says, 1 John 2, 9, he who says he is in the light 
and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. We cannot despise our brethren and say that we are right with God. You can't have hatred in your heart for somebody that is a part of God's people and still say that we're right with God. It's not possible to do, John says. Turn to one more passage, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, and listen again. Beloved, 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love, love who? He's talking about loving one another. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. We talk about things like church attendance. We talk about things like assembling with the saints because we find we find scripture that, that teaches, that's what Christians do in passages like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. But I want you to think about it in this context. In 1 John 4, verses seven and eight, the Bible says, it's not just he who hates, but he who does not love. He who just has apathy for. He who does not love does not know God. There are some things that some of us need to think about in this particular detail. Because if it's okay with me to go for weeks and months without any kind of contact with God's people, there is a spiritual problem there. The Bible teaches that there's a spiritual problem there. If I feel like I can just go for weeks and months without any kind of involvement, and if I think that I could somehow be pleasing to God without any kind of part or any kind of role among his people, how can I reconcile that notion with what I'm reading in 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 4? How can you do it? And especially in our divided world, the church ought to be the one place where we find unity, where we find harmony, where we find forgiveness and compassion and love for one another. And we display the love of God in our interactions with each other. You can't do that when you're isolated from the people of God. You just can't. All of us need to heed the will of God. If we're asking questions, can I be assured? Can I know that I'm right with God? Do I love his people? And love is an active word. It is a verb. It is a choice we make. It's not just feelings in your heart. It's something that we express for someone else. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God expresses his love for others. And that's what we are to do as well. Do I love the people of God? Next, am I committed to God's word? Will I do what God says no matter what? I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Is that my attitude when it comes to the word of God? Open your Bibles to Matthew 4, verse 4. Listen to the words of the Messiah himself. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. As he's being tempted by the devil, the way Jesus overcame temptation was by quoting scripture. He took the words out of the Old Testament and he said, thus it is written, Satan, get behind me. In Matthew 4, verse 4, he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Out of all that Jesus could have said from the Old Testament, that was the verse he chose. Man shall not live by bread alone. We shall live by the word of God. We're going to do what he says. That was Jesus' attitude. That must be our attitude as well. As you think about the question, am I committed to God's word? 
There are some things in God's word that are difficult. There are some challenges in God's word. There are some things that because we're associated with Jesus, because we wanna obey his will, there are some things that are gonna be difficult in our lives. 2 Timothy 3 verses 10 through 15 talks about things like this. It says, those who strive to live righteous in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. It says that we ought to continue though in the things we've learned and been assured of because we know that those things have great profit. We know that from childhood, the Holy Scriptures that we've learned are able to build us up. We know those things. We're gonna be committed to those things. Again, Job 13, verse 15, as Job thought about his relationship with God, he said something that is very, he said it in his pain, he said it in his anguish, but it's, it's very insightful. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I've thought about that a lot over the years. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job had a faith that was very unusual in some respects because there are a lot of people that they have limits to their faith. They have limits to what they're willing to tolerate. Job says, even though God slays me, I'll still trust him. I still wanna talk to him, Job said, but I believe and I trust that, that God is righteous, that he does what's right. In 1 Samuel 3 verse nine, the young boy Samuel, as he heard God calling him, calling him by name in the middle of the night, he said, speak Lord, your servant hears. Isn't that a wonderful attitude? Speak, Lord, your servant hears. You and I need daily to go back to the words of our God and to say those very same words. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. I'm not reading this because I'm trying to study for a Bible class or because I'm trying to prove somebody else wrong. I'm reading this because I'm your servant and I want to hear what you have to say. Am I committed to God's word? It's an assurance question. And then last, am I growing to be more like Christ? This is a question well worth reflecting on. Is there more of Christ in me today than there was a year ago or five years ago or 20 years ago? Am I growing to be more like him? And if so, in what ways am I growing in Christ-likeness? Romans 8, 29 says that one of the things God has done in saving us is he has tried to conform us. His purpose is to conform us, to press us into the mold, the image of his son. So every Christian is supposed to be following Jesus so closely that we start to look and sound more and more like him. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ in us, Philippians 2, verse 5. Colossians 1, 27, the hope of glory is Christ in you, the apostle says. The idea of Paul's ministry in there in Colossians 1 was that all that he was doing was trying to preach and teach so that Jesus would be formed in people's lives, so that people would hear and see more of his heart and his mind in the way that these new Christians were living. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So everything Paul was trying to do with his life was to be more like Jesus. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves sincerely is, when I ask about assurance of salvation, am I growing to be more like Christ? Is this something that is important to me? Is showing the mind and the heart of Christ in my life and the way I treat others and the way I treat my family, are those things important to me? Because if they're not, we're gonna lack assurance of our salvation. Have you obeyed the gospel? 
Have you done these other things that we've been talking about this morning? These are helpful questions to think about our assurance. Can I know that I'm saved? And maybe you're here this morning, you wanna take that first step that we talked about. You want to obey the gospel. We'd love to help you with that this morning. We'd love to have that opportunity. Or maybe you'd like to ask for prayers to respond and, and confess something because you know you've been struggling with something. You need the prayers of the church and we're happy to do that for you as well. If you have any need at all, won't you make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing.